they're incarcerated and they've maximized every available tool and resource to better themselves um, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. They make valuable contributions to the community on the inside and society as well. But yet they hit a ceiling. And like in Mark's case and so many others, when you hit that ceiling and you realize there's nothing left, it seems it's more about punishment than rehabilitation. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm going to be talking with Daryl and Darnell Epps about folks aging in prison. Darnell is a current student at Cornell, and he works for the Center for the Study of the Death Penalty there. He recently published an op-ed in the New York Times about the folks who were left behind to age in prison. His brother, Daryl, is a Columbia Justice and Education Scholar who also works for the Fortune Society. So when talking about people getting old in prison, there are some shocking numbers. By 2030, one in three people in prison will be 55 or older. From a dollars and cents statistical perspective, that's a very bad idea. And I thought my conversation with Daryl and Darnell Epps would stop there. But we started off talking about people aging in prison, and that conversation brought us to a much broader conversation about rehabilitation. Um, One last pseudo-technical point before we get started. The thing about people who are getting old in prison is that they are there for long sentences, um, which means they are more likely to be in for quote-unquote violent offenses. So this conversation also brings up some really interesting questions of how to actually deal with mass incarceration. So here's our conversation. So... You're here today to talk about how America's prison population is aging. So can you just paint a picture of, of, of what that actually looks like and, um, and what, do we, what do we mean when we say that folks in prison are getting older? Well, part of it, um, and part of what uh, motivated me to kind of get involved in this area uh, was a recent visit at the Auburn uh, Correctional Facility in New York where I encountered a friend of mine, reunited with a friend of mine, Mark Thompson, who uh, has 40 years in the New York State uh, prison system with about 26 years to serve on his sentence. And he's in his 60s. He's earned a bachelor's degree. He's been a a, a peer counselor. He's been uh, a facilitator for most of the you know, programs, mandatory programs that the Department of Corrections offers, whether it's from anger management, drug counseling, or, uh, and, and he's also active in religious services as well. So I met, I reunited with Mark, who during my 17 years in prison was uh, someone who I would go, we would, and Darren would seek advice from. He was clearly, uh, you know, a person who, um, kind of guided us at a point during our incarceration where there was so many, uh, you know, different things going on. So, um, to the aging population, uh, when I seen Mark, you know, all of these memories kind of uh, sprung up on me. And it was a rare opportunity I had to go back into a correctional facility because I hadn't been in one 
since I was paroled. So mm -hmm. going through the metal detectors, taking my shoes off, seeing the blue uniforms on the, on the prison guards uh, was, you know, uh, a reminder of how far I'd come. Yeah. Because by the time I'm going to Auburn Correctional Facility, and this is the, the past June or May, um, I was already fully involved in Cornell, both as a research assistant and as a full-time student, and I seen my life going in a different direction. So going back into Auburn that day and seeing officers that I actually knew who were in five points, like, hey, how you doing? How's it going for you? It was kind of a reminder of how far I'd come. And then I see Mark. So he, he offered a monologue about dying in prison where he was emphasizing how he was dealing with the reality that he was going to die in prison, despite how far he's come, despite what he's suffered. So there are many marks in the system. Um, you know, you have close to 200,000 uh, prisoners nationwide right now who are over the age of uh, 55 in state and federal correctional facilities. And in tw the ACLU projected that in 2030, it's expected the number will rise to 400,000 um, prisoners nationwide who are aged 50, age 55 and older. The costs of housing a prisoner who <laughs> is that old are high. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in health costs uh, that have to be paid to, to really house these older gentlemen who really pose no threat to the community. St the statistics show that people who are, you know, in their late 50s or early 60s are, are the least likely to reoffend and commit a new crime. And what's been suggested as a response to these changing demographics? Thomas DiNapoli, who uh, was the New York State Comptroller, wrote a piece in 2016, a report where he uh, was critical of the current policy of just simply holding these older uh, prisoners and not having uh, any alternatives to, to, to letting them out. And, one of the proposals he mentioned in his report was geriatric parole. Mm -hmm. And geriatric parole, um, New York is currently in RAP, an, an organization that uh, advocates for um, some of the men and women in, in, um, who are older and in, in incarcerated right now. Um, the geriatric parole measure that's currently being uh, considered is not as exhaustive as it should be. Someone in Mark's case who was convicted of second-degree murder would not be eligible for geriatric parole. And in New York, uh, the vast majority of prisoners who are housed or held for violent crimes are sentenced to determinate sentences. So they don't even go before a parole board. They're conditionally released after mm -hmm. they serve 85% of their sentence. So there's only a small category of offenders who are who go and have parole hearings, right? And it's mostly uh, people who've been convicted of second-degree murder or who are serving three uh, mandatory violent uh, persistent sentences, or which are basically three strikes and you're out sentences, or discretionary persistent um, sentences who would... Uh, be eligible for parole uh, in this 
in this particular system or bill that's being uh, proposed in New York. So part of um, what motivated me to, to bring attention to this point was we need a bill that in a law that is large enough to cover people in Mark's situation, the majority of whom are, are who make up most of the, the older inmates who are currently incarcerated. Uh, without that, any geriatric parole measure would be ineffective. Along the same lines with my brother, if we don't address the issue of violent crime, then we're really not going to be able to address the issue of mass incarceration. And of course, we have to keep in mind the people that have been affected by those crimes. But also, are we not taking into consideration the change in the rehabilitative factors that apply to those individuals that were determined based on their remorse and understanding of the grave consequences of their actions that they needed to change to become better people? And as in the case of Mark, he chose to change despite the fact that he was serving a sentence, I believe, of 66 and two-thirds to life or something like that. And with 40 years in, he became extremely instrumental, not only to my brother and I, but so many other people. And so with about 14 years of already um, served in prison, I hit a critical point in my time. Like, I'm getting closer and closer to the parole board. Will they release us? What will happen? And sometimes when you work so hard in there to try to better yourself for your community, for your family, just, just to be a better human being as a whole, you run into, you hit a ceiling because there's but so much prison can offer you. Hmm. And there's so many prisoners that are like that, that, you know, that they're incarcerated and they've maximized every available tool and resource that better themselves um, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. They make valuable contributions to the community on the inside and society as well. But yet they hit a ceiling. And like in Mark's case and so many others, when you hit that ceiling and you realize there's nothing left, it seems it's more about punishment than rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. There's a ceiling in of what prison can offer. We have the punitive measure, and we have to accept that, and we understand that. But now we look at the moral and ethical question. How much time is too much? And so when we look at the aging prison population, one of the things um, that... Uh, Cornell and Columbia and uh, even the Fortune Society has been trying to tackle is not only how do we address the situation from within, but what about those who are returning to society now? When we're dealing with employment and housing discrimination and you're talking about an elderly woman or man coming home after serving decades in prison, what is available? What resources are there for them? And there's not much. It's interesting because mm -hmm. one of the policy arguments you hear about letting folks out at a certain point is the cost element, mm -hmm. right? That we're we're going to end up operating like huge hospice care facilities. Mm -hmm. But there's something kind of perversely messed up about saying like it's going to cost so much to care for these people mm -hmm. that we should let them out because someone is going to have to care for them. Yeah, I mean the economic and the moral argument, you know, to see uh, which is more appealing uh, is it's it's always interesting, right? Mm -hmm. I remember doing a lot of research at Cornell uh, 
involving the death penalty and the cost of litigation, the cost of housing people on death row, seemed to be something that the public responded more to than the moral argument of capital punishment being cruel and unusual. And you see the same kind of economic versus moral uh, argument play out similarly with respect to the issue of some of the older uh, gentlemen and, and women who are currently incarcerated and serving long-term sentences. I do think we need to get to a place where the moral argument is what people respond to more. I think we need to get to the place uh, as a society where a second chance is, is not frowned upon in that uh, there's no categorical definition of who is entitled to a second chance because you see that kind of dichotomy play out uh, between violent and nonviolent offenders. People are much more receptive to supporting reforms to the Drug Law Reform Act because it's dealing with uh, nonviolent uh, crimes. But when it comes to violent crime, uh, people are less receptive to uh, being more empathetic or being more supportive of, of, of reform. And we're really not going to reduce incarceration rates if we continue to allow that to play out the way that it's playing out because most of the people in state correctional facilities are incarcerated for violent offenses. Mm -hmm. And just to make that connection clear, especially folks who have much longer sentences who might yeah. end up there when they're older, yes. Yes. they're in for violent offenses, quote yes. unquote. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, the idea of reform and the, the notion that it's a myth, that people can't be rehabilitated, that they're incorrigible. Uh, uh, it, was, it struck me that this was uh, something that was discussed between uh, Brian Stevenson and Justice Scalia during oral argument of the decision in Miller versus Alabama, which found that um, life without parole for juveniles violated the Eighth Amendment. You read the decision in Miller and you think that it's based on, you know, the evolving standards of decency, uh, jurisprudence. But when you listen to the oral argument, you see how much of this discussion in a debate centered on a question of whether or not a person can be reformed. Um, and not so much on the jurisprudential uh, elements of the Eighth Amendment. And, you know, it made me wonder whether people even want an efficient criminal justice system. Because to have an efficient criminal justice system, you have to balance anger for crime with empathy for the accused. Otherwise, if we just have a punitive system that just punishes, we're not going to reduce incarceration rates. We're going to continue to uh, pass laws that are much harsher. Uh, and there's no evidence that these tougher sentences serve as a deterrent. So, I mean, I do think that people need to understand that, as Brian Stevenson said, no one is the worst thing they've ever done, and that no matter what someone did, you know, 20 years ago, they could be an entirely different, changed, transformed person today. And when there's clear evidence of that, where there's clear evidence of reform and that someone can be an asset to their community, that they can enrich their community. And, and you know, they offer uh, that tremendous human capital to continue to hold people who are clearly reformed, who can clearly uh, enrich their communities and, and be an asset uh, to society, I think is inhumane, mm -hmm. right? And I think uh, we need to get to a place where um, 
there's a fail-safe that doesn't allow that to happen. And it could be a petition for resentencing. It could be geriatric parole. I know the Manhattan DA uh, was recently backing a bill would allow someone to petition the sentencing court for resentencing based on clear evidence of reform or rehabilitation. And I think we need a failsafe that would allow that to happen so that you don't have these cases where someone who earned a master's degree, who's been pillar of the institution they've been held at for 20 years and has done so much community service in that facility because they don't just simply serve right. prisoners. When we worked in YAP, we yeah. worked closely with Seneca County Probation, and we were getting youth from the outside, and we were working with uh, Project Hope from Waterloo and other areas where we were getting a lot of troubled youth from the schools, uh, youth who were on pins, and we were doing a service for the community. And when we went to parole, guess what? The community sent letters basically Support. supporting our release. And someone like Mark Thompson and the many others in the system who are having the same effect in the, in the communities and counties where they're currently held at, you know, we need to think about releasing them back into society and, and allowing them to be an example of what a second chance can do. And it, and it helps deconstruct that narrative that, you know, somehow punishment itself is the only rule and that no one can be reformed, that rehabilitation is a myth. And I remember reading the Miller decision where they justify a part of the ruling in that case on the ground that minors are more able to be reformed. They're more able to be rehabilitated. So to give them a sentence uh, of life without the possibility of parole is, is cruel and unusual. But what about the 24-year-old? I mean, who are we to say that somebody, that a human being isn't capable of changing? Or, and I think, you know, that, that kind of view that was adopted in Miller in the, in the outcome needs to be expanded to include some adults as well. I mean, most of the science is now showing that the brain isn't fully developed until, 25. you know, 25 years old. And they relied on that in the actual decision to show that the adolescent brain is still developing. Well, I mean, you have a lot of young men who are just above the age of 18 at the time that they received these harsh sentences who can't, you know, apply for resentencing in light of Miller uh, and who will, you know, who are doomed to serve out the remainder of their 50, 60, 70 year sentences because maybe they were two weeks above 18. Mm -hmm. Think of Carlos Benitez. Yeah who was offered 15 to life, and he was just turned 18 um, at the time of his sentence. And he declined a plea offer of 15 to life, and typically when you do that and you try your luck before a jury, the judge gives you the maximum sentence. Yeah, so we literally ju just released an episode on that yesterday, yeah. on the penalty of going to trial. Yes, so, yeah. and, and the judge didn't simply give him 25 to life that he could have given up, that, which was he the max for yeah. second-degree murder. He gave him 25 to life plus 15 years for the weapon consecutive. So he sentenced him to 40 to life. Yeah. Although at the time of the plea, the judge was privy to the same facts that he had before him at the time of the sentencing. So the judge offered him the plea right before jury selection. He was like, you better take this. If you don't take this, you're going to run the risk. We tend to sentence people consecutively. You know? And the judge 
did that, sentenced them to consecutive sentences. This was in New York? This was in New York, simply because someone exercised their constitutional right to go to trial. Now, he applied for resentencing, trying to benefit from the Miller decision. They're like, no, you were, you know, two weeks above 18. Uh, Your brain somehow automatically, when you hit that level, (laughs) you're an adult now. The flip switch, you're a grown-up. There's no no standard error of measurement or anything that you see, like, applied to Atkins test for for death penalty cases when they're determining uh, intellectual disability. There's nothing. There's no... There's no, it's just a rigid, arbitrary cutoff date that, you know, doesn't really allow youth to be given the proper consideration in, in determining what an appropriate sentence is. And CeeLo, who, that's what I call him, Carlos Benitez, he's, you know, he's, he's been in a college program, he's worked in the kitchen for a number of years, he's done a lot of good, I mean, he, he's a good reformed person. Right, and Can I ask you about this language of, of being reformed? Because, I, you know, I haven't lived the experience, mm-hmm. but it sounds to me very stark, like mm-hmm. you, you were a bad person and now you're a good person. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it feels like there's probably more of maybe someone did a bad thing, but right. they were never like... Bad. bad. Right, you know, like, I so agree. I wonder how you feel about... Because you guys are using yes. the language, so I'll reflect that, but I wonder mm-hmm. how you feel about... Well, I use the term reform only in the, in the legal sense because this is rehabilitation and reform. They tend to have certain weight legally, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's not reformed. You know, he can't be released. Or, mm. you know, this person is more likely to be reformed. So, but yeah, I don't think that, that reform really captures the, uh, the issue well, right? I don't think that people... You know, there are all kinds of structural issues that occur in certain communities which make people, which kind of constrain agency in ways uh, that, that don't reflect that someone was immoral. Like, it's hard to, you know, if someone is growing up in a home with a single mother who may be addicted to crack cocaine and they may step out and make a mistake, whatever it may be, they're caught possessing a gun or they're selling drugs. Um, I don't think you can it's I don't think it's fair to really say that person is, is bad. I mean the conditions that they grew up in were bad, right? The conditions kind of constrain their behavior in a certain way. Um, and we always have to view their actions within that context. And when you take and take all of those factors into consideration, I think uh, it allows you to, to reserve judgment uh, and, and to not really kind of have this binary way of looking at people as being good or bad. Everybody's complicated. Everybody deals with uh, many different issues, many different structures that operate in their lives. Some people are more privileged than others. So, um, Mm. but yeah, I don't know if that answers the question directly, but... No, that's helpful. um, You look like you have a a thought on the tip of your tongue. (laughs) Well, there's a saying, and uh, the child... Right. is the parent of the adult you see. And I think that when we talk about sentencing people for exorbitant amount of time or sentencing in general, I think we have to take in consideration the experience they had as youth. And I think that, as you stated earlier, that no one is inherently bad or evil or as, as some in society may depict it. But certain experiences, traumatic experiences, shape that child's mind that causes 
her or him to take a certain path that they would not normally take if they had the resources available to deal with that trauma. Mm -hmm. And as we worked in the youth assistance program, we were able to, which we took a different approach that was um, not, it was not in sync with the normal scared straight routine. And we focused on working with the youth from the community with, um, from a therapeutic perspective. And what we did is that we relived our lives from the earliest ages we could remember. We highlighted certain impactful and traumatic events leading up to incarceration. We did that within 15 minutes. But what we did is that we told our life stories and experiences in the present tense. So each and every moment we relived it. And so when the youth would come in, normally they're like looking for a scared straight show or you know, I'll never be like you. But when we're able to connect with them on an emotional level and it gets them to think, like, hold up, um, Daryl and Darnell, they were sad at nine. They witnessed domestic violence. They witnessed violence in their community. They felt depressed. They felt lonely. And as they got older, they continued to make poor decisions that eventually led them to the position that they're in today. But we're just like them, but we're free. It gives us the opportunity to work with that child and connect that child to the people and the resources available to help them deal with trauma. Because post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is not relegated to the soldier coming home from war. But also, many children have had their lives blown up because they've lost a family member to incarceration um, to death, um, to drugs, or just poverty in general is a traumatic experience. We worked with youth from various different backgrounds, and some came from real affluent backgrounds, and they had families that provided for them, both parents in the home. They had everything they needed, but they were struggling with issues, and they were hiding these issues. And when they began to talk about their experience, talk about their abuse, we were able to get them to focus on their trauma and reach out to those people who do care about them that can help them overcome that so they don't take that into the next phase of their young adult lives. Mm -hmm. And so... I think it's very important that when we consider the harsh, punitive measure of sentencing versus rehabilitation, it's not about reform. It's about providing that person with the tools necessary to go back and look at whatever caused them, whatever experience, traumatic experience it caused them to take this pathway in life and help them overcome that so that they can continue to be the person that they always believed or wanted to be. So we were speaking about trauma and I just, uh, and I, oh, I mentioned this to you uh, earlier about, you know, when we think about Chicago, like we were raised in the projects in Brooklyn. I think we're looking at communities that are traumatized by poverty, right? Uh, there's no question about it which creates an environment in which violence uh, is more likely to happen. And I think there was a study in Chicago not too long ago uh, which showed that, um, or a, a method of policing in which uh, the Chicago Police Department was starting to recognize that the distinction between a victim of violent crime and a perpetrator of violent crime was was 
was very thin. Like the mm. person who was guilty of, uh, who 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 was the victim of a violent crime today could have been the perpetrator of a violent crime the day after. Yeah. Like these communities, that the whole communities are affected by poverty, right? And we have to give that weight before we make these categorical statements about whether someone is is good or bad. We have to consider the neighborhoods they grew up in, the communities they they grew up in. And when we focus solely on punishment as the way to address the problem, when the root cause of the problem in many cases is poverty, that just lets policymakers off the hook not to Mm. invest in those communities. I think that's a great place to end. I think you guys have done... My brain is like... (laughs) There's a lot firing. You've done such an amazing job of... Um, raising this mm-hmm. issue and and connecting it to more than just a policy decision, right. but it's uh, but in the same way that you talk about the death penalty, mm-hmm. and a lot of people mm-hmm. talk about the death penalty as a way to reflect back on the whole system. Mm-hmm. I think this is another place where it's a it's a great lens through which right. to see the whole system, and right. so. Right. Thank you for doing that. I didn't have enough coffee this morning. <laughs> well, this is you without coffee, coffee, then Lord help us. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you found this podcast on. Thank you to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and to Anna White and Brooke Hopkins of the Criminal Justice Policy Program. Until next time, take care.